So welcome to our lovely New England winters. It goes on like this for months and months. Any questions about your practice? I cannot presume <laughs> anything I said would be my own opinion and interpretation of what he's saying, which I don't think I... I think he's... Uh, being inspirational and speaking to what he sees as the need um, now for our <coughs> mutual support and growth in keeping the Buddha Dharma alive and in uh, continuing to deepen and find ways to bring Buddha Dharma and practice it in our present day world, in our present day conditions. And that right now at this moment, if we're waiting for a Buddha to come down the pipe the next eon, we're kind of putting off And what we have to look to now, it does seem to me that if we're looking to one person, the the way, at least the way things are going in the West, as far as um, looking to one teacher to um, exhibit perfection, we do have eons, you know, (laughs) to wait. And it seems that, that more in the culture of Buddhism coming to the West, it seems to be uh, more a sense of having to not pull back from teachers, you know, or not that we, the sense of devotion to masters can really awaken our heart, but the sense of giving out to a master all perfection so far, it, it keeps being blown apart, you know. I mean, never, I don't even have to go into it, but you know what I mean. One master after the other gets caught in some kind of scandal, sexual, money, power, whatever, and it's been continuing this fall. So, uh, not here, of course. (laughs) But then we don't claim to be any kind of masters. Uh, Couldn't get away with that. So, um, this is totally my sense, that he's saying, okay, use teachers, use great beings, but spread it out to appreciate and support one another 
as a sense of sangha. I mean, it's really amazing. Everybody here, 100 people, really 120 if you count the ones coming for the first six weeks, so devoted in whatever form it takes in each of our minds to awakening, to living a life of integrity, a life of harmlessness. It's powerful. That's what I think is going to help awaken the planet. And so that's my my view of what he's saying. I could be completely off. Yeah. Yeah. As Buddhism comes to the West and starts to grow, what's happening um, the practice in Asia? Is it growing? Is it kind of staying the same? Is it declining? Do you have a sense of that? I have an opinion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like big speaking for. Well, it's a fact that many of the well, there's different aspects of Buddhism in Asia. There's Theravada Buddhism, which is basically what this practice comes from, and that's more Southeast Asian. Whereas Zen, say, is Japan, Korea, uh, used to be China, and there's still some in China. You know, so there's different facets. I certainly am more grounded in the Theravada tradition. And if you look at just the countries that were the real strongholds of Theravada, Sri Lanka, in the middle of a civil war, and really pulling it. Thailand still has a lot of, as does Burma, but Burma's in an atrocious sort of civil war. Uh, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam is a stronghold of Buddhism. You know, it's, it's uh, sort of decaying, sort of uh, politics taking over. Um, and, and so in many ways, it's not dead by any manner of means, but it certainly doesn't enjoy the flourishing support that it did quite some years ago. And um, so, yeah, it does seem Tibet. I'm going to look at that. So it does seem like it's moving out of out of the Southeast Asian countries and more into the West, and of course, changing as it does so. Because at least in those countries, there's the support of the culture. Like for instance, say in Thailand, if you say I'm trying to observe the five precepts in my daily life, that's more or less it's understood, you know, and respected and supported. And here, you know, if you say that kind of in a lot of situations, you know, you go to a party and you say, Well, I don't really drink, you know, I'm observing the five precepts. <laughs> you know, you kind of look down on sometimes. So there's not quite the same support here culturally. But maybe that's what Thich Nhat Hanh was talking about. We can help it grow. Opinion. Opinion only. Yeah. I mean, hmm. um, in line with all this, uh, <laughs> this might be the last one on this line. <laughs> certainly share the observation. At least, I mean, I know the Vipassana scene. I don't know Zen, you know, or Tibetan. It certainly seems to me to be more than predominantly um, 
white middle class, middle class also. Um, and so I can't speak from within, uh, you know, the, the black or, or the uh, Hispanic scene. That that's, I think is actually part of the drawback. There's a bunch of um, white middle class people brought the uh, at least the Theravada Vipassana over and started teaching it, and it sort of seems to be coming for, out from within that culture. And I don't know if it's partly uh, time, leisure time, that's necessary to put into this. If it's, see, I don't, I don't, I can't speak from the other cultures, so I can't say why it hasn't taken root. I certainly share your observation, and I agree, it's only, it's a little pocket, and it hasn't spread through the country, and it hasn't taken root in all the different cultures. There's so many cultures in this country. Uh, so it's a severe limitation. I really agree. Um, all I can say. It's true. Is there anywhere in the States where you can study continuously one person to give us a real continuity of practice? You mean in Theravada? Question? Oh, sorry. I haven't been doing that. Is there anywhere in the States where one could study continuously with one teacher in Theravada Buddhism? Continuously. Well, I mean, it seems to be the sense that that's what's done in Asia. I mean, you have mm-hmm. to Mm-hmm. I know that Bhante Gunaratna um, has a little uh, kind of monastery retreat center in West Virginia called Bhavana Society, and I think he's there quite a good deal of the time. And I know people who have gone and spent a year or so there, so that would be under his guidance to some extent. You know, he come, he travels also, but that would be. Can you think of any? So, I mean, and this, again, this little Vipassana scene here in Spirit Rock, the teachers are pretty much on the move, and it's sort of discrete retreats or sitting groups. Um, Lucille Ananda, again, these are both monks, is in the sort of the Bay Area of California, but I don't believe he has any kind of retreat facility. CIMC, yeah, that's true. If you don't want to stay at a retreat facility, you could live in Cambridge and um, practice at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center with Larry and Narayan, you know, kind of like on a day basis. Yeah, well, yeah, there's lots of teachers if you want to do a day basis. So I don't know if you're talking about intensive retreat style. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, if you settle in a city where there's a sitting group, you know, you could have ongoing connection with the teacher, and you can look in the inquiring mind for that. There's lots of that kind of thing. There's not a set-up um, residential facility that I can think of other than Bhavana, maybe Ajahn Sobin in uh, Southern California. Yeah. All right. <laughs> please. Um, please sink into your practice. <laughs> I'm serious, I mean... It's interesting, but you're not doing yourself any favors by thinking about all this stuff at all. You know, there's nowhere to go. We're pleased we're still in silence. You're not doing any yourself or anyone else any favors by talking. And I really, I hope we don't have to say this every day for the next three weeks. But please, really, settle into the practice. You're here. Really be here in this moment. It's the only moment. 
You know, anything we're thinking of a month from now, it's only a thought. It doesn't matter how powerful, it's only a thought. You know, really just be here now. That's all there is to do, and it's everything. So do you have any questions about practice? question is about um, the way it's talked about the separation of, do you, mean, you said the heart and the mind, not the body and the mind, you and that her assumption is that with deepening practice, that separation doesn't exist, yeah, and with less deepening practice, it doesn't exist either. seems to be a distinction in her experience between the mind and the heart. Things I think, uh, in my experience too, and I think in a lot of us, there seems to be a distinction between the mind and the heart. I think it's part of it is actually uh, a linguistic distinction we make here in this country that's unnecessary. The word chitta in Pali, um, it's used for both mind and heart. There's not like and often mind is pointed to here. Uh, so I actually, uh, well, I'm, I'm rooted in this culture, but I think we certainly exacerbate that sense of difference, talking about the mind, the mind. And when we talk about metta as the practice of the heart, okay, that's a, a way of speaking that I think it can exaggerate that seeming distinction. It's a way of also bringing home the fact that um, we, uh, many people talk about their practice, experiencing it all in their head and as if seeing it from the head. And we're a very head-oriented culture. In my experience, though, it's true. As my practice goes on, I begin to experience everything as if it's arising from here, whether it's thoughts, sensations, whatever. There actually isn't a distinction. And I remember one talk Saida Upandita gave Oh, I don't know, sometime when I was sitting, where he actually talked about that, uh, which surprised me because I didn't know if it was just my own weirdness, but actually he talked about that that's how it is, that everything arises from the heart, so to speak. It's not actually arising from the physical heart. It just seems that way. Yeah. But you can even begin looking now. I don't think, oh, if my practice deepens, I'll see that distinction fall away. You can even notice many ways that we are creating through the way that we describe experience, through the way that we perceive or interpret experience, that we're creating the sense of a distinction. In what way, besides using the word heart? Mm-hmm. 
All I can say is, it's true, and it's, it's difficult using language in a way that doesn't create dualism. Difficult. I find it impossible. Um, don't let yourself get hung up on words, whether it's words you're hearing from us or the way that they're being interpreted through your own experience. When you notice you're having a hang-up and it seems to be around words, it's not worth getting caught in it. You know, really, it's true. Drop it and go to your own experience and see what's really going on. good question. It's about um, when he feels uh, strong energy or so-called positive energy rising, at some point he notices it changes to restlessness. And where before he didn't catch it until he was about to jump off the cushion, now he's catching it sooner, wondering if he's doing something wrong or if it's just happening or what. Um, It's a good question because it points to... um, One of the ways that we work, I mentioned it briefly in my last talk, is balancing the different factors, like the seven factors of enlightenment. And one of the balances is between the the tranquilizing factors and the energetic ones. One easy way to look, it's not always this simple, is the balance between energy and concentration. So often what happens as... All the factors are building as mindfulness increases. Energy can get very strong. It really comes a lot of energy in this practice. And uh, often when we don't see what's happening, the tendency is to just, if the energy gets really high, we don't quite, we're paying attention to the energy, but there's actually ways that we can work to bring up, to balance the energy with concentration, with calm or with equanimity, rather than let the energy just keep building. If it builds too much without that balance, it does turn into restlessness. So it's not like a right or a wrong. It's just really to notice the way these these mental factors are arising and how they work together. So for instance, when there you can feel building energy, if you can... When you notice it, bring in mindfulness. Really continue to note it, to be aware of it on a very steady, ongoing basis. And you can also bring in concentration. So, for example, if there's strong energy and it's in a sitting, and it's not to restlessness yet, but you see it sort of building, you could get a little bit one-pointed on the breath for a while. Not to block out the energy, simply to bring in some concentration and calm and then open up again. Or if you're doing the walking, you can get really just 
feeling the bottom of the feet. This isn't a forcing. You're not trying to force the energy down. You're using that energy in the service of balancing the practice of mindfulness and concentration. So that's one way to work. And that's really all the things we say about restlessness. For instance, that's what we're trying to do. And at this stage of the retreat, when you're noticing the subtlety of the energy coming up, you can bring in some one-pointed concentration or some equanimity. If you see there's energy and you're starting to be really reactive to whatever's happening, start really noticing pleasant and unpleasant or liking and disliking. That's one of the ways, not like that makes equanimity come, but noticing the reaction or the pleasant and unpleasant tends to bring more of the spaciousness of equanimity into the mind. Is a sign. Did you? Did you? Is your question is is a sign of restlessness, awareness of pleasant and unpleasant? Um, no, not necessarily. Are you reacting to the pleasant and unpleasant? Is that what you mean by acute awareness that you're really reacting? Okay, those are two different. Awareness of pleasant and unpleasant is not the same thing as acute awareness and then reacting to it. I mean, so, so that's why I'm trying to understand your question. You could be very clearly aware of it and totally equanimous, or you could be acutely aware of subtleties and really aware, what you're really aware of is the reaction. And those are two different things, so that's why I'm, I'm trying to get what your question is. <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't have to drop it. But I say, the way that you even thought it might be restlessness makes me suspect that there's some toing and froing around the pleasant and unpleasant, and you're noticing it on a more subtle level. And um, it doesn't have to be restlessness, because it can be that on a more we're starting to see. Well, in a way, it's restless. Have you seen what goes on? How subtle this pulling towards the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant is. It's extremely subtle. It's happening on levels, you know, not just the huge desire and aversion. So it's really helpful to see it. When you start to feel like you're really lost in the reactions, that's really when we need to work with equanimity. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That, that can be helpful. Just really continue to be aware. Another sign of restlessness, though, is, is not just always physical. It's the mind that's jumping all over the place. Or worrying, you know, agitated mind. That's another sign. That's different. Um, a few times during the retreat, I, I have just had like hours of sort of hysterical reaction to sensations or something. And I wake up the next morning and I think, you know, what was that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her question is about having days 
of almost hysterical reaction to sensation, feeling like she went off the deep end for a day or so. Probably the only one here that's happened to, right? (laughs) Is that yogi mind or what? (laughs) Hysterical reaction to sensation, you mean the sensation's unpleasant and your mind really goes into a version of fear or what? I understand, but you're not alone. You know, we, every, almost everyone at some point on retreats, it's part of it that you have times where you feel like you're going off the deep end. It's not like a mistake, and it's not even, I mean, you could say it's an imbalance, but it's actually a necessary part of this process. If you were just even, 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 you'd never get the suffering of attachment and aversion. You'd never get how much we're gripped by wanting things to be the way we think they should be. If we could just see that neat, neat night, we'd never get it. And so for some reason, part of how it works is it gets incredibly exaggerated if you pull back the next day and look. But in that moment, the forces that you're gripped by, they're, they're exaggerated in relationship to the particular experience, you know. But they're not really exaggerated in relationship to how they run our life. And so, in a way, you're sort of seeing it on a microscopic, exaggerated level. There is an imbalance, for sure. I mean, we're really identified and caught in those times when we feel like we're going over the edge. That it comes back to balance in a day or two days, that's fine. It goes on for a month, okay, something is out of balance and needs, needs to be adjusted. we come here so you can have such an experience. (laughs) You know, there's also kind of a beauty. It's not always just difficult, but in a way we get so sensitive that, as you say, sometimes we can be crying or seen imbalanced out of just an appreciation of the, the awesomeness of life, as you say. And we don't often many of us maybe, don't feel it or experience it with that level of connection and vulnerability consciously in our daily life. It really, in some ways, is like peeling away layers of protection or uh, confusion or we're just not quite feeling or seeing through them uh, when we're so busy and running around. So I, I don't think that's exactly yogi mind. It's part of the process an important part of it. And sure, the next day goes, just sensations, what's the big deal? It's true from that vantage point. It is. But at the time that it's happening, it's a valid, it's a real experience. So just be as present as you can within it, you know, and to say, hey, come on, this is just a sensation. What am I weeping about? You know, you don't have to do that. But just keep the balance. If you can stay somewhat mindful, know that you're crying, Know the feeling of awesomeness. Know the sensation. Know if it's pleasant or not. Just keep coming back. That's really all you need to do. 
and not worry about it. And then, you know, okay, it's way past. Any questions about your practice, which we're assuming is continuing? Her question, Dolly asked first about talking about the different energizing factors, which she talked about rapture, restlessness, excitement. Said she feels a lot of energy coming right now, as it's near the end, and then kind of refined it into asking more about rapture. When we talk about the, um, say, energizing factors, usually we refer to the helpful ones which doesn't include restlessness and excitement. When we talk about the seven factors of enlightenment, the energizing ones are rapture, investigation, and effort, or energy itself. And they're, they're best understood, all three of them, um, when we realize that they're balanced with the calming ones. So, for example, the calming ones being concentration, calm, obviously tranquility, and equanimity, and then mindfulness, kind of the overarching balance for all of them. So, for example, what can feel like, or or we would call restlessness, you know, uh, kind of an overabundance of energy, in in a gross terms, it can be physical, or kind of you just want to run around and talk to people and do things, and this really high energy. You can also see, rather than something to get rid of, when we have been in deep practice, we have the facility to bring up the calming factors to balance that rather than just blowing it all out. And so that's a lot of what you all actually have the potential to explore and play with now. And I'm getting to rapture, but I just it's actually a good point. But one thing is this kind of high energy that does turn into restlessness, when we don't bring in mindfulness, noticing the energy, turn the mindfulness into being present with, feeling and noticing the energy, rather than saying, oh, this is uncomfortable, I have to do something about it. You can use concentration, for example, not in a stifling way, but in a calm way. If in the sitting your mind's all over, just count the breaths, one to 10 and start over. Or in the walking, Just walk very, you don't have to hold yourself back slow, but just be very aware of the sensation of the foot rather than trying to take in too much. That can sometimes bring in a little bit of one-pointedness, which can help balance the excitability. Excitement, notice it. And it's it's contagious. It really is. I mean, we, we think we're these separate beings, but actually 
each of us is so, well, we're just not separate boundaries. So we pick up each other's energy. And that's part of why coming to the end of a retreat, no matter how much you might be really quite committed in your deep in your practice and continuing, there's no way the mind doesn't start thinking, the body doesn't start picking up each other's energy. It's just the law of nature, you know. But what we can do is find how we can not hate it, but keep on being mindful of it, keep on balancing it. Now, rapture, per se, is an energizing factor, can manifest in different ways. And one way is just this really keen interest in what's going on, not the kind of interest uh, that we manufacture, let me get interested in the breath, you know, in order to bring in some concentration, but the time when the breath is just sparkly and you just are drawn into it and it's so fascinating, or excitement, you know, or whatever's happening, this kind of real keen, deep interest, that's a manifestation of rapture, as is lots of weird physical manifestations that aren't you wouldn't necessarily think of as being rapture. Hmm. Marjorie? Yeah, the more I keep, the more I'm struck by the split between my inner experience and my outer experience. Um, I was just trying to get to the question I see Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they will continue to. Marjorie's question is how, for her, the inner doesn't translate to the outer experience, meaning internally she can experience herself as being nothing but energy and impermanence seems clear, and when she opens her eyes, it's solid and normal again. And uh, First of all, it can be different for different people, but I, I also experienced that sight is sort of, in some way, the most solid sense that I can uh, just know there's nothing but energy, but the interpretation that goes along with my sight is really deeply ingrained. But first I'd say that now it might seem like the inner doesn't translate to the outer. And certainly we need to function. If we went through life and all we saw was pulsating energy and we really couldn't bring it into form, it would be difficult. There are moments, I've had moments when it is like that on retreat, and I'm really glad I'm on retreat and I don't have to function. And that's, I think, one of the uh, purposes of this intense so-called inner work. And I say so-called because as we continue to practice, that functional division between inner and outer, which is helpful, we more and more begin to experience it as a functional interpretation that... Even if I open up and see things as solid, the experience that that's not how it is becomes uh, more 
deeply understood, say, sort of more cellular, so that you're right, we've spent at least this lifetime so conditioned to see things as separate, to experience things as separate, that that conditioning springs up. It's a very strong habit. And um, even a few years of, of sitting and practicing and really deeply experiencing in so-called inward way that it's nothing but energy. There's no solidity. There's no permanence. It's all connected. We open our eyes. It's solid. And a few years of that isn't enough to make the whole conditioning we've had go away. But it begins to become more permeable. We can see its conditioning and don't necessarily believe it, but we can, can use it. And then we can um, use our practice the formal practice, because I don't think practice certainly doesn't stop when we stop sitting or when we walk out of here. But we can, the experiences and the deep understanding, the visceral understandings that come over and over and over through the deep inner looking do begin to permeate the way we live and the way we relate. You might not experience everything visually as that, but the understanding of what's so is what begins to permeate. You'll see it really does start to change how we relate. I don't know. <laughs> he wants to know if he's walking around confused all the time in his everyday life. Don't know. All I can say is keep looking. You know, just I don't know you in a question like that. I certainly can't say. But when when you're sitting with your eyes closed and noticing confusion. Um, can you just note it and be with it, or do you open your eyes because you don't like it, or what? Well, it takes me a while to realize that it's just confusion. Mm-hmm. And once I start noticing it, it's clear it's confusion, but I'm still feeling it. Mm-hmm. So then I got curious, you know, what happens if I open my eyes? Mm-hmm. could make things up, but not knowing quite your experience, you know, I wouldn't want to. I'd say, since it was confusion, of course you're not clear what's going on. I mean, that's the nature of confusion. But my, my tendency would be, not what's happened, but to hang out with confusion more rather than trying to move out of it and see, just really keep exploring confusion till you get really, really familiar with it. Then when you open your eyes, you can have it sort of in the back of your mind. Okay, things seem solid, things seem clear. And just an open sense of awareness and notice if there's confusion with that too. Um, also, my, my, I know for me, 
that sense of the world springing into solidity that Marjorie was talking about with opening the eyes is a very strong experience. So it might be that that just gets so strong it takes you out of the confusion of not quite knowing what's what. I don't know it's particularly helpful. It might be good to hang out with not knowing what's what. When they're starting to dissolve? Yeah. Different, different things. I mean, one is, again, with every, every experience, every sense experience, every mental experience, it's actually happening so quickly that it's not like I'm looking at you and it's one long, solid experience. It's visual image arising, you know, 17 trillion times in a second. So just as, as so-called internally with the eyes closed, as the mind gets more concentrated and more still, there's times when the perception is of things coming incredibly quickly, arising and passing, arising and passing. The same is true of the visual field. So there's times when the mind is quite concentrated and still that that can begin also to be coming and going. And there's also periods in practice when what is noticed is the dissolution of everything. It's just that way for a while. And that will include the visual as well. Everything just is dissolving. Hopefully it'll pass. She says everything's dissolving visually. Will it pass? Yes. (laughs) And until it does, don't drive down the freeway. Okay. Please really appreciate this day. You know, when we fully appreciate something, we don't hold on to it when it ends. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.